We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by former Taiwan This Week host and now freelance reporter or read man looking for a job, Keith Menconi. Read that however you want, guys. Good evening, Gavin. And that well-known blogger from the Hill, Michael Turton. Good evening, Gavin. Who's returning to the studio for the first time without his gallbladder. So lighter and raring to go, I hope, Michael. Anyway, tonight we'll be discussing speculation that detained Taiwanese human rights advocate Li Mingzhe is soon to face trial in China. Another push for ministerial-level cross-strait talks, alleged racial profiling by the police, calls for more shock and awe warnings on cigarette packaging and a further clampdown on plastic bags. But we'll begin with the appointment Tuesday of this week of Tainan Mayor and close tying when ally William Lai as the island's new Premier. There was obviously no surprise to this. There had been numerous reports prior to Tuesday's announcement that Lai would be the next Premier. But Keith, what do you think? Good choice or is Tsai simply circling the wagons ahead of next year's election? Well, it might be a good choice because she's circling the wagons uh, ahead of next year's election. That's the way it's being interpreted by most observers is that uh, he's going to be a so-called battle premier, meaning that he's going to be lending his political acumen to helping to prepare for the election. And in a lot of ways, uh, this makes sense. You know, you have the first premier, uh, a guy that is Lin Tran, a guy that is a little bit more focused on policy wonkery, more on the policy details and he kind of gets the reform push started and then William Lai comes in and he has a little bit more political acumen and he is there to sell the policies and make them work in a more political environment and make them work in something you know, sell them for the purposes of an election whether or not that's is the way that things are actually going to work out is going to be a very interesting to see though uh, as you know as pretty much everyone is reporting the approval ratings are are not in uh, Tsai Ing-wen's favor, so the political lift is uh, going to be pretty heavy, and uh, we're going to have to see how well Mr. Lai does. Yeah, I mean, Michael, do you think that William Lai's promotion to the premiership will help, basically help the DPP and Tsai Ing-wen's declining public support ratings? Well, as you know, I'm constantly pointing out Tsai Ing-wen's ratings aren't really declining. They, they fell from 70 to 34.6 by October of last year, and now they're in the low 30s. So actually, they're kind of stagnant. They're just hovering there. But I think the issue with Lai is he's also being groomed for something higher. A lot of people have talked about uh, him as a presidential candidate at some point in the future. And he has to get central government experience, and he has to have his face out in the north of the island where people can see it. And there's also still the possibility that he might run for the new Taipei City mayorship. So this is a good way to give him some exposure to the people in the north. That was, of course, that came up this week with several DPP members asking William Lai to actually state whether he's going to run in New Taipei or not. Because obviously the DPP need to have a candidate in Taipei. And if William Lai is going to become Premier, there seems to be some question over whether he'll run in New Taipei. Can you see him running in New Taipei? Well, he's denied it, so that's good enough for me. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know, he'll just keep denying until they beg him. And then, oh, reluctantly, he'll have to accept that crown. (laughs) Twisting his arm the whole way. The whole way there, yeah. But do you see William Lai as the, the DPP's only hope for the new Taipei election? No, actually, I, I think the DPP has a, a strong field of candidates. There's some of the other ministers who've already had some election experience, like uh, Li Ying and Yoshi Kun is still around. So there's a lot of people who uh, could do it. So if William Lai does a very good job in the premiership, there's no need for him to jump ship and run for Taipei mayor, new Taipei mayor. 
I still think he's going to do it. <laughs> he's he's got to get experience in the north if he wants to be president. Right, and of course he's taken some criticism from the opposition, who have basically said, "Well, okay, he did a good job as Tainan mayor, but he was never really scrutinised nationally." Well, that's what he's here for. This is the test. And the great thing about being premier is that since the premier is shuttled away every fourteen months anyway. No one will remember what, what, how he performed in another year. <laughs> that is a good point, although, as uh, some other folks have pointed out, the premier is the convenient scapegoat for a lot of policies. So depending on how the power dynamic between President Tsai and uh, now Premier Lai sorts itself out, uh, it, he could end up uh, receiving a lot of blame if uh, we see over the next several months uh, a continuation of some of the stagnation in policies and a continuation in the criticism and the protests. So, you know, if things do really take a left turn, uh, it's possible that his name is the name that gets associated with some of those troubles. And there goes winning the new Taipei election. I, I, I just don't see that. I think actually people are going to say, well, that's the premier's job is to take the fire. And if he does, I think the real issue, actually an issue that hasn't been much explored yet is, is that he's a new Tide member. So this is going to be it's going to be a test of how he handles the factional politics of the DPP as well. I mean, do you think that's going to become an issue in the coming weeks? I months? think so. I think a lot of people in the DPP are are terrified. He's going to appoint new tied people to all the posts that he has power over, and and if he doesn't do that, that will be a strong signal that he wants to have a an actual political party and not a personal faction. Right, and that's also going to be interesting to see how he positions himself in terms of. Uh, the as as you've pointed out on your blog, obviously, Michael, you know, cross strait relations is not under his political purview, but he, no. <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, something that uh, a number of uh, international publications seem to get a little bit muddled when they talk about this. I, I, I do have some headlines here. Actually, here we go. These are two headlines from this week regarding William Lies appointment to the premiership both from international publications one from one's from a wire service and one's from an overseas newspaper hmm. one of the headlines read taiwan's president on tuesday appointed a new premier seen as willing to reach out to rival china amid ongoing tense relations between the two sides Positive, positive headline. You could reach out to them. The other headline, however, reads The appointment of William Lai as Taiwan's new premier has raised concerns over the future of cross strait relations, given his tough, pro independent stance and strong man image. Right. Strong man? I know. I, that, that threw me. Strong man. That threw me a bit. He's an amicable chap. Would have been better than a strong man, I would have thought. <laughs> at, at, at most occasionally taciturn, I would think. <laughs> I don't know about strong man. One of those was the Associated Press, and the other one was the South China Morning Post. And you can take your pick to which one was the South China Morning Post. <laughs> right. So do you, think, do you think, obviously, like you said, Keith, he's not, his China is not his purview, but do you think he'll get dragged into this cross-strait issue? Well, as a lot of our listeners will probably remember, he actually recently was uh, somewhat dragged in. Uh, I, I forget the exact line that he gave, but he gave something on the order of uh, he wants uh, friendly relations with China, but still, or love for China, but still, you know, he, uh, being a strong supporter of Taiwanese independence. A lot of uh, the deep green uh, supporters saw that as a sign that he was backing off or backing away from more strident independence. I think he later come out and clarified, no, no, I'm still a strong supporter of Taiwanese independence. So people are going to be scrutinizing anything that he says in this regard very closely. And the more national exposure he gets, the more that's 
sort of scrutiny he is going to have and the more he's going to have to really define uh, exactly what his stance is going to be. And so, you know, if it, whichever way he goes on that, uh, that is going to be something that's kind of that is baggage that he's going to have to carry forward if uh, he ever does have national political ambitions. Do you think yeah. This could impede his <clears throat> premiership. No. I think actually the steady flow of the steady chipping away of protests and failures and whatever is going to be the thing that's going to slow him down. And do you think these protests will continue? Of course. Indefin- indefinitely. Where, where are we? That's true. That's true. That's true. But let's have a look at some of the other. There's obviously only two real new cabinet members. The cabinet remains much the same. But, of course, one of them has raised rather well, raised questions because, of course, Wellington Goo is a well-known lawyer and has zero experience in financial history and industry work, and he's been promoted the head of the Financial Supervisory Commission. Yeah, I mean, they—he's making the argument that he, you know, there's lots of legal issues at play that uh, the f- uh, financial advisory needs to deal with, and so you know that sort of expertise is going to be helpful. Uh, these are political appointments, and so it's not really a surprise that somebody without exactly the technical pedigree that you might want would be put in place. And so maybe what we're seeing in general is just a, a slightly more politicized cabinet, which might, you know, the, the cabinet in the, in the past had gotten a lot of criticism for being too wonky. So maybe a little bit more politicization, something that can carry out uh, a somewhat more cohesive policy, uh, could be a good thing. And what about his choices of? Vice Premier, Xu Junji, the former head of the Taiwan Stock Exchange. That's a strong signal that business is going to go on as usual. That's how I see it. Right. And what do you see as the main focus of the new cabinet in the coming weeks? The election. Oh, in the coming weeks. Yeah, in the weeks, Michael. We haven't got there yet. <laughs> oh, we I think actually... next year to come too quickly. It's going to be the internal sorting because uh, some of those ministers, some people who are now ministers will probably leave their posts to go run for offices in, in some places, so... I think they're going to have to straighten that out. Keith, what do you think their main focus is going to be for the coming couple of months, let's say? Well, we've been hearing a lot about tax reform recently. It seems like there are plans in place and formulating, so that could be the new fight coming forward. But we've also heard from William Lai. He's, uh, he has made, uh, I believe he's made a, a few statements about the the work week and the reforms that we've seen with uh, the one flexible, one, one day off and all that. And some indication that we might see further reforms of that, you know, reforms of the reforms. So that might be another battle that comes back uh, over the next few months as well. Yeah, sure. With, with protest, too. <laughs> with protest, yeah. And they'll be using all those days off to do more protesting. That's right. <laughs> oh, but that's illegal. Is that? They'll get fined. No. The protest groups will be fined. Because their their protesters are working too much. Oh, that's true. That <laughs> yeah, is true. Careful. It's, a, it's a slippery slope. You right. Do you need to you need overtime for all that protesting. Yes. Anyway, let's turn to something more serious now. And human rights advocate Li Mingzhu has been who has been detained in China since March of this year is apparently to stand trial soon. Well, that according to his wife Li Jingyu, and she told reporters on Wednesday of this week that a man by the name of Zheng Zhongwei rang her or contacted her somehow and said that, well, he's... Her husband has had a lawyer appointed and he's going to stand trial in Yeyang City, basically, and the People's Court in Yeyang City, which is in Hunan province. Now, previous comments from Beijing have said that Li is facing charges of endangering public security. And his wife, Li Jingyu, has said she plans to make another attempt to travel to China to see her husband. Of course, her first attempt failed after Beijing cancelled her travel permit and she was banned from boarding a flight a month 
month after her husband was actually detained. Now, the Presidential Office, the Mainland Affairs Council and the Straits Exchange Foundation have all said they will provide Lee with the necessary assistance. But, Keith, what, what can they really do in this situation? Well, as we saw in April, apparently not too terribly much. Uh, our listeners will recall that in April, Miss <clears throat> Lee made a prior attempt to go to China, and uh, her travel was blocked, as she was not allowed in. This time around, though, I think it's fairly likely that she will be allowed in, at least if uh, the reporting on all this is accurate. Uh, it seems like she was informed by Chinese officials of the forthcoming trial and somewhat almost invited to go over. Um, so if if it, those were really Chinese, you know, if it really was an overture inviting her in, it seems like it would be somewhat strange for them to block her transit at this point. One reason why they might be uh, somewhat keen to see her make that trip right now in particular is uh, she was scheduled to give uh, some comments at the UN Human Rights Council's Working Group on Enforced or Involuntary disappearances next week. Um, they are investigating the case of Li Mingzhe, the UN is, and in fact, it's uh, worth pointing out that this is the first time a UN working group has taken on uh, the case of a uh, ROC <coughs> national uh, to investigate uh, their detention. So this was, you know, a fairly high-profile event that was going to happen next week, at least, you know, if you're somebody who follows the UN. And if she's going to be in China, then she can't be at the UN. Whether or not there was any deliberate planning on that, hard to say, but it does seem like a big coincidence. And Michael, what do you think the outcome of this trial is going to be? A kangaroo court, a real trial? Is Li Mingzhe going to be exonerated and sent back to Taiwan, or do you think he'll serve time in China? I think he'll serve time, and uh, it will be very interesting to see the effect, uh, the chilling effect on further visits by democracy activists from Taiwan. I mean, obviously, if you get sentenced, it could sort of anger people here in Taiwan. Well... It, the anger is superfluous. They already don't like China. So I, I think... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they might get angry. It's true. Yeah, you wouldn't want to see them angry. What are they going to do then? <laughs> well, we did, see, we did see the Mainland Affairs Council warn NGOs about their conduct in China. So even at the official level, we're already seeing some of that chilling effect that you're yeah, exactly. talking about right there. Yeah. And basically the Mainland Affairs Council saying, be very careful to follow the laws over in China, I mean that's a even uh, even then the the laws are whatever the officials say right. they are. So yeah. Anyway, let's stay with the Mainland Affairs Council and Mainland Affairs Council Minister Catherine Zhang on Tuesday of this week once again called on China to restart dialogue with Taiwan, but of course without any preconditions. And then on Thursday of this week, the council's deputy minister, Chou Chui Zhang, told reporters that there will be no shift in policy under the new cabinet and the Tsai administration will continue to adhere to a policy of promoting peaceful and stable cross-strait ties and also maintaining the status quo. Now, similar statements have of course been made by government officials at least once every month since President Tsai Ing-wen took office <laughs> and some months they've been made three or four times. All of them of course have either fallen on deaf ears or received rather strongly worded replies from Beijing along the lines and I paraphrase, it's your or Taiwan's fault, there's no dialogue. Of course the problem is acceptance of the 1992 consensus and the one China principle which Beijing is seeking and the DPP refuses to bend to in its non-recognition of both. Now, so how long is this going to go on for? Eight years. <laughs> <laughs> Always the optimist, Michael. Always the optimist. You could have said four years. Been a bit no, pessimistic about it. I think Tide's going to be re-elected. So. so you think this, this, this same old arguments are going to go on for the next eight years? Of course. What else can they do? And really, not frosty relations are benefiting Taiwan. It's good for Taiwan's economy. 
So Tsai is like making noise while at the same time ensuring that we don't that the economy goes on. Of course, there have well. been there have been the naysayers there have argued, that, mm. oh no, the Chinese tourists aren't coming here because they don't want to come here, and our economy is going down the can because the tourists aren't coming there. What, how <laughs> you, what do you say to that argument? Well, I think it's the, the, the tourists are a net negative, so they can stay in China. Everyone everyone says the same thing about Chinese tourists when they actually arrive. Hey, wait a second, they're not spending any money; they're trashing our place. Blah blah, you know the drill. I'm actually curious to hear Michael maybe drill down on that uh, a little bit further. So what are the ways that frosty cross-strait relations is affecting Taiwan's economy? Well, they'll be pushing more people to invest uh, elsewhere outside of China and back home in Taiwan. Um, If we have good relations with China, they always benefit China. China, China's... uh, China's programs such as uh, creating agricultural districts in China to, to steal Taiwan's agricultural technology or inviting uh, talent over to work in China, all these things are slowed by frosty cross-strait relations. And then Tsai has a positive program of, in, of moving business out, the southbound policy, right, of, of involving with those other countries. And then that's helped by frosty relations with China. Since if we have great relations, quote-unquote great relations with China as we had in the Maingzhou, then we're China-focused. So, all in all, I, I mean, I could go on and on about this, but I, I think it's actually quite good for the economy that we have frost relations with China, and we're seeing that in, you know, the, the rising orders, the relatively decent, if anemic, economic growth, and so on. Yeah, so the big question, uh, as Gavin pointed out, is how long could this go on and... I mean, the bottom line is there's a stalemate right now. The, China's bottom line is you need to recognize Taiwan as part of China. Tsai Ing-wen's not willing to do that. So how you interpret who's right and who's wrong in that equation really is just determined by whether or not you think the people of Taiwan have a right to democratic self-determination. Um, so, you know, that's that's just going to be going on indefinitely. A lot of people, a lot of analysts have been pointing towards uh, the 19th Party Congress coming up in October as maybe something that's going to shake things up and maybe put cross-strait relations on a different trajectory based on the analysis that uh, I'm, I'm hearing from some of the military analyst types in uh, Washington, D.C., I think that that's pretty unlikely uh, just for the basic fact that Xi Jinping, Chinese President Xi Jinping, has about all the power he could want. So if he wanted a different cross-strait policy, he would have a different cross-strait policy. So there's just, it's kind of silly to think that you know, it's going to be him in power before and after. There's not really going to be a fundamental change there. Right. And I think also one of the problems we're seeing here is that China doesn't have a cross-strait policy. So there's no there's there's no China doesn't know what it wants and if it wants peaceful uh, annexation of Taiwan it's going to have to involve itself in Taiwan it's going to have to negotiate it's going to have to send people over and to do that it's going to have to talk so sooner or later China will come to the table if it wants Taiwan peacefully so if China what we're really seeing is not that Taiwan is causing a problem what we're basically seeing is China does not know how to deal with this. And of course, that depends which newspapers you read, of course, because certain newspapers, it's Taiwan causes the problem. When other of newspapers, course. it's China causes the problem. Of course. So there you go. Whichever your political bent is there, you can pick a side. Now we have to take a short break now here on Taiwan This Week, but we'll be right back after these rather important commercials.
Welcome back to Taiwan this week, and we're going to begin this half of the show with anger over the shooting by police of a 27-year-old Vietnamese migrant worker. Now, Nguyen Quoc Pi was shot by police in Shinzu County after he allegedly attacked one officer when he was trying to detain him for theft and vandalism. The police officer reportedly used pepper spray in an attempt to subdue Nguyen at first, but the suspect then managed to wash it out of his eyes in the irrigation ditch that was nearby, and then persisted in throwing stones at the police. Now, now, Nguyen was shot as he tried to enter a patrol car. And the National Police Agency has said that the officer involved fired nine shots at Nguyen, six of which reportedly hit their target. Now, the Vietnamese migrant worker community here in Taiwan and labour rights groups protested the shooting on Monday of this week and Vietnam's Ministry of Foreign Affairs called on Taiwan authorities to ensure a thorough investigation of the matter on Wednesday of this week. Now there have been calls for surveillance footage or other images of the shooting to be released to determine whether the police action was legal and their allegations of excessive use of force rather by police are, well, true or false and also there's been allegations of racial profiling involved in this one. Now anyone that watches the news in Taiwan will understand that police shootings and shooting incidents are not rare in Taiwan, although some people might think they are, they're not. But once a week we'll have a shooting incident on the television, either mob involved most of the time it's mob involved but there are police incidents when police do fire their guns but of course this was a shooting of a migrant worker which opened a whole kettle of fish so keith do you think racial profiling was maybe going on here well, we don't know the facts of the case yet. Uh, the calls for releasing footage and all that, obviously, I support that. More information is, is always better than less information. What we know so far really is just what the police officers have told us. And based on what they've told us, it uh, does seem like they were facing uh, some fairly violent opposition from this individual. And so, you know, it, it could be the case that violent force was necessary. It's just, you know, uh, really, really hard to tell when you're, you're only getting the account of police officers. I, I think what's more interesting than what happened in this particular case is the fact that uh, it's had such a, a, a marked reaction from so many uh, in the um, so many migrant workers and activists in Taiwan. Because, of course certain some some groups of activists and migrant workers have come out and said it's commonplace for police to harass them here. Right, yeah, and that's that's uh, our perspective honestly that we haven't heard too much of before you know we're used to anybody who follows these sorts of protests we're used to hearing about minimum wage issues obviously these workers are not subject to the minimum wage that Taiwanese citizens and other uh, foreign workers are subject to uh, so that's a huge point of contention there's been protests about brokerage fees and whether or not uh, these workers have to go back home every three years that's actually something that's been resolved uh, over the last six months or so so but up until now uh, the policing issue has not been something that we've been hearing a lot about uh, during these protests. So this has been an interesting window into a problem that uh, probably up until now has not been getting enough uh, recognition. I mean, Michael, do you think there's concern at the moment about maybe Vietnam could stop its nationals from coming over here to work? Well, I haven't heard anything like that. For me, the, the, the interesting thing about the nine bullets is how normal that is. When have you ever heard of a Taiwan policeman pulling out his gun and shooting once? Everything ends in a hail of bullets here. That's true. Of course, there was yeah. the infamous one many years ago yeah. on Igor East Road in Taipei, yes. near the Chiang Kai-shek Mall, where I believe the police expounded like 90 bullets yes. to stop a car, and the car continued moving down the road. That's actually on video. 
So, you know, that's it's so common for them to fire a lot of bullets. I, I think actually Keith has raised the real issue here, which is the context of police harassment, of alleged police harassment, I should say, of minorities here, of foreign, of, uh, foreign workers. I mean, what do you think you could be done about that? I mean, obviously, the foreign workers don't like it, and it could deter the governments of the countries where the foreign workers come from from actually allowing them to come to Taiwan to work. Well, the remittances are big parts of those economies, so I don't see anything other than a few pro forma protests happening. And you think the protests will fall on deaf ears, or do you think people will eventually, over time, pay attention to it? This is this is really hitting Taiwan in its pocketbooks. I think over time people will start to pay attention, partly because of the pocket issue, but partly because Taiwanese are changing. They're constantly becoming more, what's the word I want, more humane, more more concerned about the people around them. That's what I've seen over the last 25 years. And of course, while, while, while shootings, like I said earlier, are pretty commonplace in Taiwan, police, police brutality is not necessarily commonplace no, it's, in Taiwan. No, it's very rare. The police go to great lengths to avoid hurting people that they're trying to arrest. And this is also an issue that's sort of tied up in the changing national and demographic character of Taiwan. Uh, a statistic that blew my mind the first time I ran into it is that, you know, I, something I saw in 2014, I think, uh, something like 10% of the kids in Taiwan's elementary schools have foreign-born parents. Uh, some of yeah. that is probably from China, but a lot of that is from South Asia and Southeast Asia. Yep. And, uh, you know, as, as you run into people more from uh, other countries, you know, your, your, your kids' friends' mothers from Vietnam, your other kids' friends' mothers from Indonesia, um, you know, attitudes uh, will change little by little. Uh, an underlying problem here, though, is the fact that the uh, and, and this is something that a lot of the protesters were pointing out is that the reason that we see so many Vietnamese workers in an uh, illegal sort of situation is because they have run away from their jobs. Their status in Taiwan is completely linked to their job, so they really can't run out on it. A lot of them do because they can't afford the brokerage fees. The, the fees are so high that they run away to escape them and then find illegal work. And because of that, uh, there's probably a presumption on the part of Taiwanese police that if you see, uh, you know, some, some of these workers wandering around, there is a chance that they're one of these absconded workers. So just in general, there's a lot of chaos in the system and probably addressing some of those underlying issues would uh, maybe take some of the pressure off from a policing standpoint. Because there was another incident a couple of months ago in the south here in Taiwan where a Ph.D. student was rousted by the police, yes. of course. I mean, they were, they were from the Philippines, I believe. Yeah. And they were a PhD student, and they were walking down the road, and the police basically jumped on them and said, you're an absconded worker. Right, right. Yeah, and so that's just the presumption that a lot of these migrant workers are facing at this point, uh, yeah. un unfortunately. Right, let's turn to some health news now, because, of course, Michael's just got out of the hospital, so we want to be healthy. There we go. <laughs> just for you. No, we don't want to be healthy. I've been a month with healthy food. I'm sick of it. And you can't eat chocolate anymore. Please don't remind uh, me. Oh, dear. So I just had to laugh when I said that. <laughs> laugh. This is, this is the sort of glee that Gavin takes in it other people's glee. misery. My, Michael Turden can't eat chocolate now. <laughs> and this comes off the tongue so well, doesn't it, really? Anyway, in health news, there was an interesting story about... It this week, and it was concerned warning labels on cigarette packaging with Academ.
academics at a forum in Taipei saying that the ones that currently adorn cigarette packaging here in Taiwan are too small and not frightening enough to be effective. Now, warning labels in Taiwan only compromise some 35% of cigarette packaging. And that size attendees at the Tobacco Hazard and Prevention Forum for cross-strait locations, Hong Kong and Macau. That's a bit of a mouthful of a forum. Whoever came up with that forum needs to really do something about their naming. Anyway, the attendees at that forum described Taiwan's policy as simply a light reminder that possibly maybe you shouldn't smoke. <laughs> Now, the panel compared Taiwan's cigarette purchasing data with that of Hong Kong, where law requires warning labels and pictures take up 85% of all packaging. Now, government statistics from last year showed that 15.3% of adults here in Taiwan or some 3 million people smoke. Now, the mandatory pictorial warning labels on cigarette packets here in Taiwan were implemented in 2009 and it was expanded in 2014 to include new pictures, three of which are apparently used by the European Union. So, pictures on cigarettes. You're, you've got children. Do you think cigarette pictures warnings would deter them from smoking? Nope. <laughs> Can you expound on that, Michael? This is a typical, it's a typical view in Taiwan society that you can change people's behavior by moralizing at them, and of course that's not going to happen. If you want, to, if you want them to stop smoking, you have to raise the price of cigarettes. It's really that simple. And go ahead. Um, yeah, well, just a, just a couple of facts to kind of put this in context. Taiwan is facing uh, a relatively severe smoking problem. Yeah. Uh, the smoking rate is at 15.3%, according to statistics that I saw. That's actually down from 19.8% uh, in 2010. So uh, the trajectory is going down. Uh, but compared to other countries, it's uh, much, much higher. The, and actually, the, the rate of men smoking in Taiwan is particularly high. Uh, the statistic that I saw is over 40% of Taiwanese men uh, between 30 and 50 are smoking. Uh, just to give a reference point, if we look at uh, Singapore, Norway, Hong Kong, those are all hovering around in the 20s. So, you know, it's, it's a significant health concern. Uh, but I think that Michael has kind of hit on uh, the appropriate question, which is uh, how exactly are you going to deal with it? Another way that Taiwan is, has been trying to deal with it is to just restrict the number of places that you can smoke in. There's already pretty severe restrictions in yeah. most places that don't uh, allow you to smoke. They expanded the bus stops as well this week. In New, oh, okay. New Taipei, you, you can't smoke at bus stops. Right. You're outside, of course. You can't smoke in many parks in Taiwan, mm -hmm. of course. How wonderful. They're looking to expand it even more, though. Uh, earlier this year, we had heard plans that it was basically going to become illegal to smoke in all bars and nightclubs and... Uh, that that it seemed like it was going to become a, an essentially a blanket ban everywhere. Uh, since then, some of the nightclubs and bars have come out and said, "But people like smoking here," uh, <laughs> and the government has been uh, a little bit reluctant to push against them on that. So it's uh, it'll be interesting to see where that all goes. Whether or not these pictures really make a difference, I don't know. I, I, I saw some interesting studies, actually, this yeah? week. I checked two studies from the U.S. from last year. One of them was from a university, the name of which I forget, but it's quite... Well, Chapel Hill, Chapel Hill okay. University. Okay. One yeah. of them was a Chapel Hill University survey into this, which screamed, cigarette warning photos work. The other mm. one was from Illinois, mm -hmm. which screamed, cigarette warnings don't work. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So I guess you want a half a dozen of one and six of the other, really, anyway. But being the only smoker in the room, I can actually say that the pictures don't deter me because I simply <laughs> don't look at them. <laughs> but on another point, I will admit that when they first banned smoking in some bars here in Taiwan, sitting in them was much nicer. Hmm. Yeah, especially yeah. for the workers, I imagine. Mm. I just I do want to highlight one of the pictures that is uh, currently on cigarettes. It's like a, a wilted peach. That's actually a European Union. That's they think a wilted peach is going to deter people from nicotine, the most highly addictive substance on the planet. A wilted peach. It's art. <laughs> <laughs> so this abstract art is really going to make people rethink their life choices. Now you could put it on a T-shirt. I've often thought that should go on a T-shirt. <laughs> that would look pretty... Anyway, that's not very... It was a serious topic, and we just ruined it with there. But never mind, we shall carry on and talk about another serious topic. That being the Environmental Protection Agency this week, saying it plans to restrict more retailers from providing free plastic bags to customers from next January. Now, the new business sectors included in the ban are drug, medical equipment and cosmetic stores, electronic stores, bookstores, stationery stores, beverage shops, cafes and bakeries. Now, the policy already covers government offices, related stores, department stores, hypermarkets, supermarkets, convenience stores, and fast food restaurants. Now, apparently, according to the EPA, the new plastic ban policy will cover up to 80,000 stores island-wide. Of course, they're not all individual stores. They're also chains, branches, so on to speak. Now, obviously, the plastic bag ban is not a new policy. It's been around since 2002, and the EPA says that its data shows that the 2002 restriction alone, which applied to some 20,000 stores island-wide, have reduced disposable plastic bag use by 2 billion units per year and the government says the new plastic bag ban is projected to ensure that that falls by another 1.5 billion units annually following the introduction next January. So plastic bags Keith, when you last went to a shop did they give you a plastic bag or did you have to buy one? I did have to buy one but the price, it's an NT I mean I just, I have a hard time believing that that's a real deterrent for anybody it's certainly not a deterrent for lazy old me. Um, <laughs> I, 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 just anecdotally, though, I do think it's interesting. I am running into more and more Taiwanese people that uh, go out of their way to avoid getting plastic bags, especially, uh, and I don't know <clears throat> if these regulations are going to cover this situation, but even if you go to like a milk tea spot or a coffee spot, they always put your drink in a little handbag that you can then carry away. Uh, and I've met a lot of people now that are just going to carry all their stuff in their hands without putting it in that little well, extra bag. They're going to have to from next January because beverage shops is on the list of targeted there we businesses. Go. There we go. So that's going to be a big shift. So, Michael, when you last went shopping, did they give, when you had your gallbladder out, did they put it in a nice plastic bag? <laughs> Sorry. Plastic jar. Plastic. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of, a lot of places Is it a around. reusable jar, though, for gallbladders? <laughs> you only have one gallbladder, so <laughs> maybe we could get a husband and wife thing mm. or something. Mm. But... Uh, <laughs> So, you know, they get around it in a lot of ways. When I go to the local supermarket, whose name I will not use, I don't have to buy a plastic bag because what they do is they put the meat in a separate plastic bag and they just use that plastic bag for all the stuff I buy. <laughs> <laughs> of course, there are, there are calls. Call a loophole. The yeah. government have said that, because in Taipei City and Tai in New Taipei and Taipei City, we have special plastic bags for garbage disposal. You can't simply take your shopping bag down and throw it in the garbage truck because they'll say, Oi, get out of it. No. And you'll have to put it in a nice blue bag. This is why I live in Taichung. Yeah, well, all right, we'll get, we'll get there in a minute. But apparently the government has said that it, it, it hopes to, in, in the coming year, 
ensure that all stores in Taipei sell bags that have been produced and are able to be disposed of in the garbage trucks. Do you think this is a good idea? Uh, ideally, sure. I mean, would you buy one of them? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and actually, uh, I did a little bit of reading on uh, the program that Gavin is talking about. So basically, the idea is the store partners with the government, and the bags that they give you there to carry out your goods can also be used for garbage. It's run into problems, apparently. Uh, the stores, it's just been, uh, this, this is a policy that's already been in place uh, for, for, for a while now. Um, the, the, the change that they're proposing is to, I think, make it cheaper for these stores to carry out the policy. And also, I think it would allow them to put their own branding on top of these bags. Um, but the problem that they've run into is just that the bags that they had made originally were just cheaper. And so nobody, they, they had no incentive to sell the government bags and they were just kept using their own. Uh, and I think that this just gets to a broader point that, you know, the government can come up with whatever policy it might want to, and it can come up with whatever statistics it wants. Oh, it, we got rid of 4 billion bags, 5 billion bags. You know, they can come up with these statistics out of anywhere, but actual usage may vary. And Taiwanese people are just going to do whatever makes sense to them. Uh, another policy that I would point to is the, the, the difficulty with getting people to really sort out some of their recyclables in Taipei when they're supposed to be sorting out the garbage bag and the recyclable bag. Uh, a year ago, they actually had to say explicitly, uh, please put your motorcycle helmets in the recycling. We will take that away. We will deal with that. Because what people had been doing, it, they'd just been shoving used motorcycle helmets into the garbage bags, and that was just causing havoc, apparently, uh, at, at the garbage uh, factories. So, you know, people are just going to sort of gravitate towards whatever's easiest, and uh, the, these policy planners really, uh, they, they need to find the path of least resistance to lead people towards a more environmentally friendly sort of behavior. So do you separate your garbage, Michael? We do. Our garbage man is militant. If we come up, if we have the wrong garbage in the wrong bag, we're dead. <laughs> but when you actually That's throw good. the garbage garbage in the truck, it's any old plastic bag it's in. Yeah, for us. Well, this is we live in Taichung. Okay, we don't have this. For example, we don't have this helmet problem because we just steal them from each other. Right. And then further south, <laughs> they, the they don't economy. wear helmets. Exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so. But I mean, do you think the Taichung city government should probably introduce a program like in Taipei, New Taipei, where you have to buy government garbage bags? Uh. I could see that maybe in Lin's second term. <laughs> but you're not, not popular in Taijong, this wouldn't be. I, no, I, I think, uh, no, I don't, I don't see that happening. And it would be hard to implement. We're not like Taipei people. <laughs> we're, we're, we're too passive, is that what you're saying? Uh, we're authentically Taiwanese in Taijong, okay? That's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> right, anyway, and that's where we'll leave the show today. Or rather, I should say, that's where we'll be packing up the show this week there. Is that, that a segue? Is that, that was a segue? A, that was a bad joke. I'll apologize for that. If, if I anyway. can get out of this with another gallbladder joke, I'll be happy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of one now, but before we go, maybe in the next two minutes I'll think of one. Anyway, I've been joined in the studio today by Keith Menconi. Uh, glad to be here. And the gallbladderless Michael Turton. <laughs> well, Not exactly a joke. Just, <laughs> just a, It was a statement of fact. Exactly. Great to be here. Right. Anyway, thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan on this week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.